Today's episode is brought to you by June Taylor. June Taylor Incorporated is a U.S.-based manufacturing company proudly making 90% of their quilting and sewing tools in Wisconsin. From innovative slotted rulers and thread racks to sew-by-number quilt batting, June Taylor products provide professionally finished results for all your sewing and quilting projects. Thank you so much, June Taylor. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 138 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we're talking about running a wholesale distribution company with my guests, Stan and Brittany Gray. Stan Gray is the owner of E.E. Shank Company, which is a distributor, converter, and wholesaler of all types of fabrics and sewing notions servicing customers throughout the world. After 51 years with the company, he's still involved in the day-to-day operations and enjoys his interaction with customers, employees, and vendors. Brittany is the general manager of E.E. Shank Company and Stan's daughter. After starting her career in the fashion industry in New York City, She moved back to her hometown of Portland, Oregon in 2014 to work for her family's business. So Stan and Brittany Gray, welcome. Hello, Abby. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm excited to hear more about your company. So um, Brittany, we're going to start with you, if that's okay. And I wondered if we could kind of um, get an overview of what E.E. Shank does today, because I'm sure many listeners to the show have heard of it, have heard about it maybe, but maybe some haven't and aren't really that familiar with kind of the whole scope. So I wondered if you could kind of give that to us and explain to us what it is that you do and what you provide. Of course. So there's a few different components of E. Shank. We are distributor of fabrics and notions. So we represent about 30 plus different fabric brands and then hundreds and hundreds of different notions companies that we are essentially buying and selling their products. And then we also have our own converting business um, under an E.E. Shank brand where we have more basic products, more like utility type of fabrics. And then we have Maywood Studio, which is a quilting brand. And so we are, um, you know, selling to retail shops, manufacturers, and um, quite a few different industries. Okay. And are you mainly serving quilters and quilting and quilt shops? Or are there other industries in there that are sort of outside of quilting and sort of fabric? Yeah, there are sorts of industries that we sell to. Uh, We have, oh goodness, uh, over 5,000 different customers. And they range from quilt shops to e-commerce stores to small Etsy shops to larger manufacturers um, to paint companies and restaurants and all sorts of service industries as well. Okay. So for those industries, what kinds of things are you selling to them that are not quilting related? It could be anything from cheesecloth for painters to uh, maybe tablecloths 
restaurants or, um, you know, different specialty fabrics that um, a maybe a music company would use to line their music cases. Okay. So it's all in the textile realm, but it's just that some industries use textiles that are outside of sort of what we would think of as going to a fabric store. Yes. Okay. Got it. But it's all sort of related to textiles in some way. It's not outside of that. Um, no, it would all be textile related or notions or sewing products. Okay, great. And you're located in Portland. And then do you have other offices or like warehouses that are in other parts of the country? At this point, we just have our warehouse in Portland, Oregon. Okay. Um, and then you are, um, you have customers that are, it sounds like they must be all over the country, I'm imagining, but also all over the world, right? Are you serving customers that are international? We are. Customers all over the world. Okay, great. And um, and do you know off the top of your head, like how many products that represents just to give people like a scope overall? At this point, we have over 60,000 different items. Wow. Okay. 60,000. That is a lot. Okay. Um, and okay. So Stan, I'm wondering if you can kind of take us back. I know we said in the introduction that you have been with this company for 51 years, which is really amazing. And I think, especially today when people seem to sort of come and go from jobs pretty, you know, quickly, um, pretty unusual to be with the same company for so long. So I wondered, though, before we kind of get to your personal history at E-Shank, if you could take us back to E-Shank's history itself. I know the company was founded in 1921, but back then it wasn't serving a quilting customer, really. Um, But it was a fabric customer. So could you just talk about sort of the early days of this company and its founding and what it was doing in the beginning? Well, the, uh, <clears throat> the company back in 1921 was founded as a um, importer of silks from China. And then they gradually uh, took on a lot of other fabrications, including a woolen division and uh, just linings, you name it. Cause again, the, the, Business back then was probably split about 50-50 between manufacturing and retail. Um, The um, company had uh, opened shortly after um, the uh, founding. They opened a Portland warehouse, a Spokane warehouse, and a uh, Vancouver, British Columbia warehouse so that they had a broader distribution but still with roots really in the northwest. the business or the product that we were selling back then was all textiles. Um, And any kind of textile that came along was something that we had to be involved with to really service the the broad scope of customers that we had. So when double knits got big in the 1970s, we had to have uh, double knits to service that industry. And as things slowly but surely changed, uh, you know, with the um, department stores that all had fabric departments, those started to, to wean and, and uh, cotton shops or quilt shops started to pop up. And uh, we needed to have product that would service them. 
And so many of the large textile uh, operations at the time were really volume-based and needed the chains, uh, whether they be fabric chains or department store chains, to really service that industry. And they kind of turned their back on the independence. So, you know, that's where I think uh, E.E. Shank Company started making some changes and moving towards uh, that more independent-type business. Right. So, I mean, these, this has been some radical shifts and changes over these decades that, you know, this is really, we're talking almost 100 years worth of textile history here, of re- retail, of trying to sell textiles to our customers. And it's really shifted a lot where manufacturing has gone offshore and who the customer is and what they need has changed, as you said. Um, and so we can kind of talk a little bit deeper about that um, and about making the shift to quilting and to independent, um, into independent retail stores and, and why that allowed you um, to survive because, um, because a lot of companies, I think, went out of business at that time when, um, when offshoring happened. Am I, do you think that that's correct? And, and how did, how did you know that quilting was going to be you know, important to survival. Were there signs there that that was something that you were going to need to to make that shift toward? Well, just like back in the 70s when uh, the stretch and sew shops started to pick up and and, uh, open on every corner, so to speak. I mean, there were lots and lots of them. And so that was the the boom and everybody followed that boom industry of double knits. as that started to die down, um, I think it really came down to the fact that, that you didn't see the the people sewing apparel nearly as much, but you also lost a segment of the, the customers that were maybe women that were staying at home at the time that moved into the workforce. And apparel started being made overseas, so it got to be uh, cheaper. Well, Sewing didn't really go away. It just kind of changed, and you started to see the the quilt shops become more important and hobbying becoming more important. So that's where quilting really expanded. And, of course, keeping an eye on where business is, you just kind of follow the market trends, which is what we've always done. Mm-hmm. Right. And we can talk later about where that might go next, whether it's going to stick with quilting or whether it might shift and and change yet again, whether we're seeing a contraction or not. Um, So, um, okay. So it's, uh, E-Shank has changed and it will probably continue to change. And that's smart because (laughs) that's how you survive. Um, So, but I want to talk a little bit about um, how you got there because it sounds as though it wasn't necessarily your dream job uh, that you were, you know, sitting around as a young child thinking, I I want to work in the textile industry, but, um, but it, it did end up becoming your your life's work. So, um, so you took a part time job at E. Shank when you were in college in 1968. Where were you in college? Well, I was going to Portland State uh, here in town, and um, I had a friend that was working there uh, after schools. And he happened to be my roommate, so uh, when I picked him up one night, his boss came out with him and uh, wanted to know if I would come on for a short time and give them a hand because they were busy, which I agreed to do, and somehow I never got away. <laughs> so what were you doing, uh, you know, those years when you were in college, when you were working part-time? 
Well, basically, I delivered packages. I packed packages. I pulled orders. I mean, you name it, uh, any odd job that needed to be done is something that I did. Um, later on, they tried to get me to call on uh, customers and get me into sales, but that was really not my dream. Um, I always thought of sales as being something that was being forced on somebody, you know, to try to get them to buy something they really didn't need and didn't really look at it from the standpoint of all the products that people really need for existence. So, um, you know, they kind of tricked me into calling on some department stores to check inventory and that type of thing. And from there, I ended up with a company car and traveling from southern Washington down into northern California, calling on customers and doing exactly what I didn't think I'd ever want to do. Okay, so you did end up working in sales. And um, yep. okay, and then um, and then you ended up becoming general manager it sounds like the maybe the 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 owner of the company was sick and you ended up taking on that role yeah he um contracted cancer and when he was diagnosed with it he never came back again and i was asked to try to step into that position too and work it out course the same day we had somebody that did all of our fabric purchasing and he had a heart attack exactly the same day oh never to return <laughs> so I ended up with three jobs and trying to juggle a lot of balls and try to keep things going which um, you know took a little bit of time and effort but it all worked out and um, then later on I ended up um going to the bank and talking him into giving me an extremely large loan, which I didn't deserve because I didn't have any money or equity in anything, but uh, they believed in me. And um, I took over the company in 1975 um, and bought it out. So shortly after that, uh, I guess in 1978, I bought uh, another company in California that was not doing well. And they had a San Francisco warehouse, which um, yeah, we ended up consolidating into Los Angeles so that we just had the two. And we ran two warehouses for a long, long time until we, I guess a year and a half ago when we shut the Los Angeles one down just because it, it wasn't needed with rapid transportation, communication, and all those things. We could do better with one large facility than... Uh, you know, the two facilities. Wow. So you really worked your way up from, you know, from being in the warehouse in a part-time role to owning the company, which is kind of a, a great story. Were there other roles in between there that we missed um, in telling that story that we should go back to? So I know you were, you were doing kind of odd jobs, then you were in sales, and then, you know, you ended up with, with those three jobs on the same day. Were there other roles too? <laughs> Well, in a small company of about 12 people, you end up doing a lot of a lot of roles. You know, you do whatever has to be done. So um, and that's basically it. Whether it was making samples or whatever, if it needed to be done, it it uh, it somebody had to step up and do it. So we all pitched in together and that's just the way we all worked. OK. All right. And so now how many employees are um, are at Shank now? About 100. We've been a little over that mark in the past when we had the two warehouses, but we're right about 100 employees now. Wow. And then we also have 
around 25 independent contractor sales reps as well. Okay. All right. Great. Right. So, so this company's really grown a lot under under your leadership, um, for sure. And Brittany, I want, wanted to hear a little bit more about your background, too. I know we said in the intro that you had been in New York City and were in the fashion industry and then moved back home. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what you were doing before you came to join your father in this business and then what attracted you to come back home? Sure. Um, well, you know, I had always been a part of Yi Shang. I, you know, modeled in our trends shows, fashion shows when I was young. Um, during the summers, I did filing. During the winters, um, home from school, I would work in the warehouse. So I was always kind of a, around Yi Shank, and it's always been, you know, a part of me. Um, and growing up, I would go to New York City with my dad on his buying trips and just fell in love with New York City and knew that I wanted to live there. So I went to college in upstate New York and studied business and retail management. And then after college, I got a job in New York City in the fashion industry and then ended up staying for 11 years doing wholesale sales to department stores for contemporary and luxury accessory brands. So I was doing that up until five years ago. And during that time, my dad and I had always had conversations about what it would look like if I moved back to Portland and started working for Shank. And it just felt like the right time. We started talking more about it and made it happen. Okay. Wow. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it sounds like you were pretty well prepared given your education and also your years of experience and also a little bit of time away, you know, to, to, to be yourself and, and um, forge your own way before coming back is probably a healthy thing to do as well. Absolutely. I don't know that I would have felt as prepared and just uh, like I was the right fit for the company if I hadn't had my own experiences on my own and just my own career prior to coming here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so I know that um, I know that you you have some employees who have been at eShank for decades. And um, and I just wondered if you could um, just talk about maybe one or two of them who besides you, Stan, have also kind of been there for their whole, you know, careers or for just a, for, for a really long time? Because I think it speaks to the character of the company that someone would stick around for such a long period. Yeah, we have a lot of um, employees that have been here 10, 20, 30, and even 40 years Um although that's starting to change because some of those are starting to retire around me. But, um, yeah, it's been more of a family atmosphere, I think, that we've tried to create here so that everybody is willing to to jump in and help with anything and everything that goes on here. So, um, you know, it's been more of a... Um, uh, involvement in their future with the company and every person here is as important as the next whether they do the most menial jobs or whether they're in head of finance so, I mean you really you need every component to make a business work and that's what I think we've tried to do is make them all feel like they're definitely part of the business and the family right Okay. Um, and you, I want to talk a little bit about Maywood Studios. So, uh, and also about your sort of basics. Is the basics brand called 
Eshank, is that what like is that the name of it? Well, we've shortened that to ESCO um, for Eshank Company, and there's a lot of different basic products that we do because most of the textile mills here in the United States went away way back when. NAFTA was probably the biggest cause of that, but um, just with cheaper labor overseas and whatever, higher regulations for uh, environmental and that type of thing, um, it was just more of a natural to bring product into this country from overseas rather than producing it here any longer from cost efficiencies, et cetera. So we brought in a lot of different things, most, uh, I mean, from our muslins, ducks, denims, all the basic kinds of things that people would need that are very utilitarian. Uh, we recently, within the last about a year ago, put in a uh, lycra fabric division selling things that would go into dance and skate or cheerleaders or whatever, because there is a... Um, uh, pent-up demand for those types of fabrics. And again, none of them are made here. And if you just look at the Olympics and you look at every component of that, whether they're skaters or downhill people, they, they're all wearing these Lycra things and they're not made by some mass, you know, major manufacturer someplace. So, you know, we've tried to accommodate all of that. Uh, by the same token, the Maywood Studio Division was one that we felt the necessity to get into because so many of these textile mills were so dependent on the large customers, they just couldn't wrap their their arms around the, the small stores that wouldn't give them the volume that they actually needed for, you know, for them to do the types of quantities that they needed. Um, and, you know, a lot of small small vendors popped up that were trying to cater to the needs of these independent stores. So they had something unique that wasn't offered in a chain. The chains were always considering, you know, how they could get the best price. We've always tried to consider how to have the best quality. So, uh, Maywood studio was a very, uh, big part of our, our expansion there. And yet we never wanted to give up our distributor business. That's, that's very, very important to us. I want to take a minute now to talk about our sponsor, June Taylor, and to talk with Jill Rapp, who is the Vice President of Sales and Marketing at June Taylor. This is Jill Rapp. I'm Vice President of Sales and Marketing for June Taylor Company. Hi, Jill. Tell us a little bit about what is hot at June Taylor right now. Well, this is going to sound crazy, but it's one of our more simpler products. It's called Quilt As You Go, and it's actually 80-20 quilt batting that has a pattern printed right on the top of it. And so whether you're a beginner or an accomplished quilter, it's a lot of fun, but it takes the quilting down to one step instead of three. You use a basting spray of some type to get all of the strips and squares or whatever the top of the quilt requires or the project requires. And you sew onto the batting as you're piecing and you sew through the batting and through the backing. So you essentially complete all three steps in one. As you're piecing on top, you're actually making your full quilt and you just have to add binding. So sewing by number is extremely easy for beginners but it's nice for that accomplished quilter to have something that is done in a couple of hours versus taking a long time. And these projects are fairly small, so they allow you to do additional quilting 
if you want to make it look fancier or just simply leave it as is. So that's what's hot right now is quilt as you go with pre-printed patterns right on the batting. And we offer it quilt as you go in tote bags and table runners and placemats and bibs. So there's a lot of really simple projects that you can complete in like an hour or an hour and a half. And sometimes it's nice to start something and get it done the same day, right? Oh, totally. Yeah, very satisfying. (laughs) And so where can people head if they want to check out all of what June Taylor has to offer. Well, our products are carried at many independent quilt shops across the country. So I would suggest that you go there first. We do have some things um, in the chain stores as well, or you can find them on our website and we refer you to places that carry them that way. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Joel. This has been great. Thank you, Abby. Thank you so much, June Taylor. And now back to my conversation with E. Shank. So Maywood Studio is basically a um, a quilting cotton company within your company, and it competes with, in some way, or is a peer to the other major quilting cotton companies that serve the independent stores. So thinking about Northcott and Free Spirit and Andover and these sorts of companies. Do I have that right? Yeah, we yeah. play in the same arena. But every brand has its own personality, and so I don't necessarily see it as competing with. It just is kind of going right with, working with the other brands that we represent. Right. Okay. So, and you're, because you're also carrying many of those other brands as well, so that um, when a quilt shop or an Etsy shop or, uh, you know, whoever your retailer is, gets a, a catalog, for example, from Shank, they can they can order um, fabrics from Maywood Studio along with fabrics from many of these other brands as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then are you using, um, uh, you know, freelance designers or are they in-house designers? Because, you know, we've seen in the, over the last, let's say five to eight years, the real celebritization, is that a word? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Becoming a celebrity of some of the freelance designers out there for some of these companies um, and their own personal brands really um, becoming very recognizable and sort of becoming almost like a co-marketer or a marketing partner with the fabric companies themselves. And then some fabric companies really haven't embraced that and have really just stuck with, you know, the in-house designers. And that's somewhat of a different model. We have both and we think both are really important. We have, uh, you know, out-of-house designers that bring incredible, uh, not just ideas, but the marketing that goes with it and, and, the creativity. And then we also have a creative director and CAD artists in-house that that come up with some incredible things as well. And we think it's nice to have the balance. Okay. And then what about the trade tariffs? Because I know um, in August, I spent many weeks working on this giant article about trade tariffs and looking at how they were going to impact the crafts industry as a whole and certainly um, the textile industry specifically. And, um, you know, a lot of the quilting cottons for the independent stores are printed in Korea and printed in Japan, um, whereas for the chain stores, they're printed in China. And so the 
the, the um, textiles imported from China got the tariffs, whereas the ones from Korea and Japan didn't. And I, I don't know whether, um, how, to what degree you felt impacted by the tariffs and, and how that's going for you. Well, we do very little um, in China. We do some things in China because not for to be cheaper, but to fulfill a need on something that maybe we can't do in Korea or we can do as well or better in China. Um, but the notions industry is being impacted so much of the notions product is um, impacted by that and prices are increasing there. Uh, most of our fabrics are out of Korea uh, predominantly, although we use some other places. So we don't feel the impact of that tariff at, at this particular point in time. Um, and it's unfortunate for those people that are that are being hit with the cost increases because it's not going to be easy to move those products elsewhere uh, in a timely fashion anyway to be able to bring prices back down again. So there's going to be an impact definitely on the consumer. Yeah, for sure. Um, because we're here we are in January and some of that I think has already gone into effect. Um, and we'll, you know, we'll be ratcheting up too. So, um, and then what about digital printing? Is that something that is on your radar? Is that something you're already doing with Maywood Studios or that you are thinking about doing in the future? It seems like um, the high-speed digital printing that's, you know, done overseas that the prices are starting to come down to some degree and more and more companies are reaching there just so that they can have, you know, the lower minimums and less inventory and that sort of thing. We do some digital printing uh, with Maywood Studio, not a lot of it. And we think that there's both some advantages and disadvantages of digital printing. Yeah, the, the advantages that you get into is when you're trying to do work that has uh, multiple colors exceeding the 18 screen maximum that we're able to print uh, in Korea, um, digital becomes a necessity then. Um, some people are doing it for quantity and a lot of other things because you can print a little lesser quantity, but we're still very entrenched in doing uh, both rotary and flatbed screen printing because there's better dye penetration, um, which gives you maybe a longer lasting product or a little bit better color control and things like that. So we, we see the, the importance of digital, but not to the point that we really want to roll over completely digital on our products. I would say that at this point, well over 90% of our products are still screen printed in the uh, old-fashioned way, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Okay. And when you're looking at your quilt shops that, you know, are buying from you um, and the mix of, you know, who they are, in other words, whether they are a brick and mortar Retail shop, uh, an e-commerce only shop, a mix of the two. And, you know, if it is e-commerce, if it's a small e-commerce shop, like a, an Etsy shop that's run out of somebody's home, 
versus, you know, a Missouri star or something like that, where it's really a, a giant, you know, e-commerce presence, you know, who, who, how are they doing? I mean, who, is that mix changing for you? Has it changed over the last, let's say three to five years? Do you see it shifting the mix of, of shops and shop owners? The, the mix is, isn't necessarily changing. We have more quilt shops than any other type of customer. Um, but maybe who is successful is changing a little bit because we found that it's the quilt shops that can really adapt and, you know, maybe also offer e-commerce or the ones that, that are really moving forward rather than those that have maybe stayed a little bit more, more stagnant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think, um, Abby, that we're seeing a change in retailing in general. And yes, there's an online presence today that we didn't experience uh, you know, in the past. And there are locations around the country that really don't have a quilt shop or someplace that's able to service them. Uh, but to be honest, the statistics that are out there will show you that people really prefer to buy their fabric and their thread. Anything that needs to be color matched, they would prefer to buy in a a retail brick and mortar store where they can touch and feel those goods. Um, It's difficult to know quality, texture, a lot of different things from the internet, but the internet does serve a a purpose. And I think that you're seeing a lot of pre-cuts, a lot of kits, a lot of things like that that are uh, being sold online, maybe even more so than the yardage itself. I don't really see the brick and mortar that is going to go away tomorrow. Um, it's just, I think, impossible for people to really know exactly what they're getting online. And it's not like you can return it like a pair of shoes because cut fabric is a little bit more unique. And also the quilt shop provides a, a creative space. It's classes, it's it's bringing a community together, and it's all those things that you can't do with, with just a website. Mm-hmm. And so the stores that are innovating in that way are, are capitalizing on that, ex, you know, sort of experiential. And that's true for all of retail, I think. You know, it's it's stores maybe being asked to do a little bit more than, than they used to, which is unfortunate, but it's just kind of the reality now where it's not just uh, open your doors and people come in and shop, but stores really need to provide the experience as well. Right, because it can't just be dependent on having the inventory, in other words, it used to be that you had that was where the inventory was, and so that was enough. Um, but now the inventory is also available online, so the store has to be something more than just the place where inventory is found. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, and what about quilt market? Let's talk a little bit about the industry trade show. Um, so I know you're there, um, I'm assuming at both the fall and the spring show and likely I'm going to guess have been there from the beginning. Um, how have you experienced it changing over the years and, and what role are you seeing the trade show playing now? Well, I think with all of the, um, uh, products that are being viewed today online that, that 
you know, where people used to go to quilt market to really get exposure to all of these things, I think so many things are available for them to see. Um, what I think is really important about quilt market is that people get not only uh, a view of the products that are there, but how they're used and they get a different perspective, something that you can't just get from the internet. Um, I think that uh, there's a whole social media aspect to it today. Um, I know that we as a company make up about 80 to 100 brand new projects with our brand new fabrics that we're showing off there, trying to show people what they can do with the product because product means nothing unless you have something to do with it. So I think that, I think, Quilt market still has an important part. Uh, I just think it's a little bit more of a dynamic change in the reasons why people are going there. And some people don't go there to buy at all. They go just for the ideas and, and new trends that they might see that they wouldn't see sitting in their own shop all the time. Mm-hmm. Right. And when you say that there's a social media aspect to it, can you say a little bit more about that? Well, you have you have people that are bloggers. You have people that are uh, doing videos of things that they're posting online. So, you know, if you're not there in that arena with everyone else, uh, you know, you don't get that same exposure. Um, so, I just think that there's there's a lot more to it today than just people going there for the product, and a lot of that is social media, uh, a backdoor advertising, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. There's almost like a performative nature of it. So that, you know, the booth design and display is not just for the people who are there who are from the trade, but it's also for our consumers back home. Correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that's interesting. And I, I'd like to talk a little bit, you all put on your own um, trade show, kind of a, a regional trade show, correct? Called Trends? Yes. It's um, a, yeah, it's, talk it's, a little bit about it, that. Well, it's something that started a long time ago when we uh, were still doing a lot of apparel fabrics. And that's why Brittany said that she used to model in the shows when she was very, <laughs> oh, very young. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> so, we used to do a whole runway thing with uh, models showing off the fabrics that we sold and and how you could put things together and whatever. And it was it was a big deal because it got um, people out of their shops. It got them in so that they could talk with the vendors, understand the whole reason for for product lines that have been developed. Um, it gave them a chance to get away and break from their shops. And, and, you know, we had a lot of special, uh, products that were, were being displayed. We had a lot of promos that they could come and buy that would be, uh, advantageous for them. And so it became an integral part of our, uh, our operation and we still do it twice a year. We don't do the fashion shows and, and to be honest, most of the product is geared towards, um, quilting and crafting and that type of thing, but but not totally. So it just kind of brings everything together under one roof and and yet maybe a little bit regional, but we have people that fly out from the Midwest and the East Coast even on an annual basis, uh, if not every show, just to see what we're doing. And it just gives them a little different twist than 
Quilt Market or some of the other shows that, that may be out there. Trends has been going on for over 30 years, which I just think is pretty impressive yeah. that, that our company has put it on for such a long time. And we continue to do classes and demos and you know open our warehouse up for shopping. A lot of our fabric vendors and Notion vendors come and set up booths just like at Quilt Market, Market but a scaled down version. And some of them even offer a product that's being previewed that's Quilt Market releases. Oh, neat. And is this just for shop owners? You have to have like an eShink account in order to be able to be admitted. I just want to make sure we're clear so people don't, yes. you know, arrive <laughs> if they're not. Yes, it's for, it's for retail stores specifically. Okay. And in order to set up an account, um, because there may be some people listening who are, who are thinking, well, you know, I would like to get into becoming a retailer. What do I need to do? Um, so how does one go about um, becoming an, uh, an account holder and what what do you need to qualify? Well, first of all, you need to be a, a registered licensed business. Um, we require an initial order um, that's a little bit more sizable of $250 and then a $1,200 yearly minimum to maintain the account. Okay. All right. That's good. And, um, and do you need, you obviously, you don't need to be a brick and mortar shop, but you need to have maybe a URL or one or the other. Yeah, you, we have to have a tax resale number where applicable and a business license that has to do with the industry that, uh, relates to what we sell. Um, you know, we, we can't just sell anybody and, uh, we definitely want to support our retail partners. So, uh, we, we're, we're pretty regimented about this. Okay. All right. Great. So that's what people would need to become a retailer. Um, cause I think there are people out there. I mean, I, I know I have a lot of listeners who, um, who are small business people. So that might be of interest for sure. Um, so thank you for, for sharing that. And, um, I wondered whether you wanted to speak now a little bit about, um, something that people have been talking online quite a bit about, which is sort of this glut of fabric on the market or a feeling that, gosh, there's too much, right? Like, you know, the cycle is so fast and, you know, we see the new fabric on Instagram and then by the time it's available, boom, we're already seeing the, the next new thing. And there's just, you know, each collection has too many SKUs. And so there's, it's impossible for, you know, a shop to, to buy the whole of any one collection and because so it's just too expensive. And anyway, this sort of feeling of overwhelm that there's just too much of it. And as a result of that, you know, maybe uh, some of the companies are struggling or, are, you know, are, are going are going under. Um, and, you know, maybe that's going to lead to or is already in the midst of, of some sort of a contraction. Um, I don't know whether that's true or not, um, but it's certainly something that people are talking about. So I wondered if you, you know, being from your perspective, looking at it, whether you're seeing that happening or what you're thinking is. Oh boy, this is a topic that could go on for a long, long discussion. <laughs> like a can of worms. Huh? Yeah, it really is. Um, you know, I think a lot of what's happened is um, vendors are trying to put out a lot more product because stores, especially in small communities, 
don't have the tendency to reorder product quite the same as they used to. Um, they have customers coming into a store in a small community and they don't want to see the same thing over and over again. So, you know, they have limited sales they may be making on it. So vendors may be overreacting and coming out with too much product for the stores because they can't maybe consume all of it. Um, so that can be problematic. And yet on the other side, there is a huge demand for product that can be bought uh, and reordered because if you're going to make a project or quilt kits or whatever it may be, really to hang something up that you've, you've spent hours and hours and hours making as a display and then not be able to support it with reorders is difficult for the shops and it really can hurt them. So there's, there's a, a balance between this. You know, you talked about the size of the lines. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that put out the 12 and 15 piece collections that, that are good. And in some ways that's maybe not so good because every store and every corner that bought that line looks exactly like the person down the street. Um, so, I mean, I just think there's a lot of different ways that lines are put together for different reasons. And I don't think that there's any one formula that you can pin on any vendor or any particular line itself. Um, it just ha there has to be thought behind it. So again, this is a kind of a controversial thing. There's a lot of product being shown to the stores. They can't possibly buy it all, but that's where they're going to have to discriminate and buy what they think is right for them and in a uh, quantity that's right for them and reorder it for the period that's right for them. So, you know, I, again, every vendor is going to do it differently and every store is going to react differently. Yeah. So I guess in some way, what you're saying is that having a huge amount on the market, whether that is sustainable for the manufacturers is a, another question entirely. But from a store owner's perspective, allows you to curate, right? Because there's so many choices. So really, you could say, well, you know, our taste is what it comes down to. And if we have a particular look and a particular aesthetic, we can choose from among this huge amount and create something here at our store that's different from the store down the street. And therefore, you come in here and you know, you've got, you know, a pre. I know like the quilt store in here where I live, Gather Here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, it's just always a beautifully curated selection because Virginia and Noah who own it have great taste. And so whenever you go in there, whatever is there, they've chosen and you can bet they make great choices. Um, so in other words, you know, from a shop owner's perspective, it gives you that opportunity. Yes, definitely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But whether it's sustainable on a, in a broader sense <laughs> is another question entirely because, um, you know, it, with, there's a whole lot of it and not, not too many orders for all of it. Um, can it last? So. That's going to be that's going to be the tough thing for the vendor to to um, figure out how they can manage it because if the time it takes to design lines and and get them in a format to be able to print them and and all the work that it takes 
if you're not going to sell enough of it, it's not going to be a sustainable business for very long. Right. So, you know, and if you come out with too many lines in a year and don't sell enough of them, that's going to be pretty tough on the overhead side if you're not making the revenue to support it. Correct. Exactly. And so we'll have to just sort of see how it shakes out um, as time goes by. Uh, so I wondered if you could talk um, a little bit about um, any sort of promises you see or other challenges you see going forward um, before we get to your recommendations. So anything else you see sort of happening in the industry, in the quilting industry in particular, or in the sewing industry as a whole, um, and either on challenges or are sort of uh, exciting promises <laughs> coming down the line that you feel like we should be aware of or start thinking about. As for promises, we've seen a huge movement towards non-quilting items and sewing, whether it be bags or jelly roll rugs or apparel or just non-quilting items. And I think that that's really exciting and shows that there's just a lot more uh, more options in in the sewing industry and sewing community rather than just um, just quilting. Yeah, I think so too. And um, I have recently become a garment sewer myself after never sewing clothes and have started learning about garment substrates and buying independent um, patterns from independent pattern makers and sort of diving, you know, headfirst into that world. And it's been great and really interesting. And um, I wonder whether that's another way that some of the shops as well as the trade show could um, maybe revitalize is just to add some, add back in some of the garment sewing, which maybe in the seventies was done for one reason, um, maybe to save money, uh, or something like that, but now is really done for a different reason, more of a mindfulness, um, more of a, you know, of sort of regaining control of your, of your life, of your, you know, what you wear, your self-expression, and um, it's sort of a different reason for, it's almost like the, the farm-to-table movement, but in clothing or something. Well, you know, um, I think what you're seeing today is a huge DIY creative movement, and I think Pinterest and things like that are really driving this. Um, and I'm not so sure that, and not just the young people, but all types of creative people uh, want to do other things today. They want to they want to go to uh, you know some function with a bag that they just made uh, out of whatever fabrication that might not just be quilting fabrics. And so, you know, there's there's a lot of things that you see on Pinterest that are very creative. They're very, um, you know, hip things to do that people get uh, accolades for and that they're not quilts. So I think there's a whole new trend here and we're going to start seeing, you know, a lot of diversification in this. Not that quilting is going away because I don't think it's going away at all. I just think you're seeing a new twist to, to this and the quilt shops are going to have to respond too because there isn't a, a large full-fledged fabric store in these small communities. There's a quilt shop and to turn younger people away or, or people that aren't looking just to buy, you know, 
quilting type fabrics and, and their associated products, I think they're losing business that they could be finding. And I think that's where some of this online business is going today because there's there's a lot of these websites that are not selling any quilting fabrics. They're selling things that are quite unique. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. Um, and I think you're right. I think it's got to be, you got to think a little bit more broadly and even including yarn for some shops, including yarn and crochet and knitting into that mix or embroidery or, you know, sort of expanding outward into cross stitch or other, you know, sort of other crafts or, or other materials just for sewing. Um, but one way or the other sort of expanding outward beyond quilting or in, in so sort of a broader definition of what it means to be a maker. Um, so then thank you for that. I think that's great. Um, all right. I would like to, uh, to get to your, um, your recommendations because you've got some good ones and actually Stan, your first one grooves very nicely with what we were just <laughs> talking about, which is, um, cork fabrics. And I've seen these everywhere. Um, and the ones that you're recommending are made by a company called Elite. Well, that's kind of a brand we have on things that we don't create ourselves that we're, we're buying overseas. Um, and so that's really ours. We, we buy from a plant overseas that does everything with cork from making wine bottle corks to, um, apparel corks and wall covering corks. Um, this has been a new phenomena that has come about, I think, because of, again, this creative DIY movement, and we're seeing still tremendous growth in it. Um, the products that are out there, some people are marketing some products we don't think are quite as good because they're not vulcanized to a heavy backing that, that you really need to support the cork. Some of them were really intended for, for uh, maybe a wall covering application or other things. And what we've done is we're running a, a product that is made really for the upholstery trade. So you could make couches or chairs or stools or whatever out of it. But we, in turn, are slicing it down from the the decorator width of 54 inches down to 27 inches wide and putting it in small put-ups so the store is going to have a lot of selection in a small quantity. Uh, because, to be honest, some of these bags are only using it for trim and you know, if it's sold by the inch, customer can buy six inches of it for a pretty cheap price, actually. Um, or if they're making a coin purse or a wallet or whatever it may be. But this is a trend, and, and we have followed trends forever. And whether it was the double-knit trend or whatever's come along, you follow those trends and you write them out, and there will be another one around the corner, and you just have to you know, continue to read tomorrow's newspaper to be able to adapt to those things. So Cork's the one right now that, you know, some people got in it and got out of it, but it is thriving and it's growing like crazy right now. Mm-hmm. And where do you look for those trends? Where, where, where are you turning? Well, you know, social media, Brittany comes in with a lot of this from her social media contacts. Um, and, you know, you just see things that are happening. And um, I, just have one of those habits where I walk through a department store and I'm looking at all kinds of things in that store from the cosmetics area to, you know, gifts or whatever, to try to look for things that are starting to happen. You know, a few years ago, burlap was the big thing. 
So as things come and go and change, you just better be watching for them and move with them. Right. Okay. And Brittany, you wanted to recommend a few podcasts. Um, Some of them have been recommended many times on the show, like How I Built This, which everybody loves and I love as well. But one of them um, I've never heard of, which is Ritual. <laughs> yes, it's he's an endurance um, athlete. And I just, he has a really nice, just kind of holistic approach to life that I, I like hearing about. Uh, but I love how I built this planet money. I've been listening to podcasts nonstop. I have a one-year-old, so I don't get a read as much as I used to. So now it's it's all about podcasts. Yeah. City news and little little snippets. Oh, totally. Yes. And I, I agree with you. It's it's awesome for, you know, listening while you're um, doing the dishes or, you know, out on a run or whatever it might be. And I know you you're a runner as well. I am. And are you a marathon runner or you just run kind of, I, I don't compete. I just like to run, but I am not competitive. I like to compete as well as just run for fun. Okay. So I've done quite a few marathons. Oh, good for you. That's amazing. What was the last one you did? Uh, last one was the New York City Marathon. Wow. A few years ago, when I, right before I left New York. Nice. Nice. Wow, that's amazing. Okay, I'm in awe. Um, and um, and Stan, you wanted to recommend great wine. <laughs> well, you know, some people collect stamps, but uh, licking stamps is no fun. So I like <laughs> I like great wine instead. I think that that's a good note to end on because we should all recommend some good wine. <laughs> Do you have a particular wine that you like the most? Oh. No. Although we live here in the Northwest and we're known for our Pinot Noirs, so we have some fabulous producers here and there's not just any one of them. So, um, you know, we just happen to be blessed, but uh, we've traveled all over the world. And when we've done that, we've gone to different places that have great vineyards. So it's kind of fun. Yeah, I bet. Well, Stan and Brittany, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Walsh and House podcast. This has been really great. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks, Abby. And you've been listening to the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Visit my blog, walshynaps.com, where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing, blogging, and small business delivered right to your inbox each week. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Today's episode was sponsored by June Taylor. Whether you sew for business or a hobby, June Taylor's slotted shape cut ruler can quickly and accurately cut strips, squares, triangles, and more, all with one ruler. For a quick quilting project, try June Taylor's Quilt As You Go with the quilting pattern printed right on the batting. June Taylor is giving away 10 kits containing shape cut rulers and a set of six Quilt As You Go placemats. So head over to the show notes for this episode and check out the rules. It is a great contest. So thank you so much, June Taylor. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.